Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. I am excited. Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts. And um, we have an exciting uh, co-host. So uh, I guess, Andrew, why don't you uh, introduce our co-host who will introduce our guest? Yeah, I, th- I thought we'd do something different. You know, we're uh, we're hopefully going to wrap up, you know, this will be our third episode discussing Tar Spot, and we're going to end with the expert herself. But I figure to, oh. to celebrate the occasion, we'd have uh, Dr. Darren Mueller on as a, as a co-host. Darren, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Awesome. Well, it's uh, you're the you're the man of the hour. So why don't you introduce our guest? Well, I, I feel honored <laughs> because I've I've given like thirty tar spot talks in the last two <laughs> months, and ninety percent of my talks are all Darcy's slides. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I, like if if any of her administ- administrators are listening, I would say that they need to probably give her a raise because <laughs> um, she's been carrying a, the her and and a few of our other colleagues are carrying the lion's share of the the research that's done on tar spot. So it is an honor to uh, bring you on on the podcast here, Darcy. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself, but. Um, she is a great colleague and a, a friend that's out in uh, at Purdue University. Well, Darren, I appreciate all the sweet comments. Um, for those of you that haven't heard uh, of, I guess, talk, I'm Darcy Talenko, field crop extension pathologist here at Purdue. I guess this has been four and a half years now at Purdue. And uh, I get tar spot landed in my lap when I started the job in August of 2018. I didn't bring it to Indiana, <laughs> um, but it was here. <laughs> Um, and so we've, you know, tried to move forward. I say we have a great, great set of colleagues that we work with. So a lot of the information we collaborate with across the region as well. <laughs> I, I got to ask Darcy, you know, I, I've gotten to know you and, and you know, you're, it, it seems like Darren mentioned it, that all, all of our pre- previous guests, you know, Allison Robertson and, and Marty Chilbert, it seems like everybody references Darcy Talenko. So you're, you're definitely, it seems like you're the expert on this tar spot issue, but it also comes with your, you know, I've been talking with you, you're extremely busy here the last few months. Is is it worth it to be the expert in something as, uh, you know, that dominates the conversation like tar spot? I guess it depends on what angle you look at. You know, it's it's nice to you know, be able to help with some of the research, you know, information we've generated. It does keep me busy. So my family wonders where I am for the last <laughs> few months because we've been traveling a lot, given just as many talks as Darren has on Tar Spot. Um, but I think that's the exciting part is it's new and exciting and there's a lot of questions and we still can't, you know, don't have all the answers. So that's the exciting part of it. Um, I know it's been impactful on our growers. So that's the other side of things is, you, when, you know, we see the losses that can occur when we have a severe epidemic. Um, you know, that's, that's the exciting part is try to working on it. But then the hard part is, you know, it is having such an impact across our region that we, we want to be able to provide information that's useful. Well, one of the things that I know has been eye-opening to me and just start off with some gratitude is whether it's been Darren and Iowa State or, or um, the relationship we have with kind of the the whole ICM team, um, the amount of effort that you guys put in and the work you're putting in is really significant. And I think in a world where there's a lot of marketing, it's good to have some people that are just working on, um, you know, an agnostic look at, at diseases and how to manage them. So certainly appreciate that um, and all the hard work you're doing. Um, 
as we get started, we like to start the show, Darcy, by asking our guests kind of not necessarily tar spot related, but just in agriculture. Is there something that has you really excited? And maybe all your time has been dedicated to tar spot, but it's always <laughs> interesting to see what are the what are the thought leaders thinking about. So what uh, what in agriculture has you excited? Well, I think there, there's a lot of new tools. I mean, tar spot's the one we're focused on a lot lately. Um, but I, you know, I come from actually doing lots of work in peanuts back in North Carolina and Virginia. I worked a lot in peanuts. So diseases have always been the exciting part of, of what I've done in my job and, and trying to control them. So there, you know, there are new tools. we got new technology. Now we're looking at, you know, at, you know, how do we use drones to apply our fungicides kind of thing. So there's all this new technology and trying to evaluate that, but also remembering that there's some classic things we always have to do in, as a plant pathologist and identifying those pathogens and that, and that still requires us to look under the microscope and use some of that biology. So I guess yeah, that's a broad answer to that, I guess. <laughs> no, that's good though. And it's interesting because the drone technology piece, it's something we've talked recently about because we've been starting to think through management for tar spot. And, you know, we, we kind of debate the application method, you know, ground rig, airplane, helicopter, drone. And I was thinking, for all the 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 negative economic impact of tar spot, we're going to figure out which application methods work because if you don't get it applied on every single corn plant, the the tar spot's going to paint the map for us. So, um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, Darcy, I, I figure I'd open up the 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 discussion on tar spot. You know, I I think there's it, it's I'm glad we're having you on because I'm hoping we can wrap you know again put a bow on this conversation and um you know just just I, I think just start with the the basic life cycle of of tar spot. So you know we we kind of know uh, have have a rough idea how this impacts you know growers when it comes to management and, and the potential yield. But let, let's start you know with the science in in the the very beginning of of tar spot. So, so one thing we hear about um, tar spot, the pathogen is phylocoromatis. So we really only have identified one of those pathogens. If you look in the literature, the, they talk about a complex out of Latin America. But here in the United States and North and the, you know, up in this West, what do I say, Indiana, Illinois area, mainly we have only found the phylocora species. So we're really generally dealing with one, one pathogen. Um, and so the life cycle and, and some work that we've done, we've shown that it is um, starting, it's overwintering in our corn debris. Um, at least one year, we're getting viable spores. Um, the unique factor of, you know, phylocora is it's what we call an obligate pathogen. It may not be 100% true obligate, but it requires a living corn tissue to really complete its life cycle. So we have the spores that are overwintering um, in the debris. They're released up into that crop canopy. It begins its infection process. And then probably 14 to 21 days later, that's when we start seeing those, um, those tar spots, the stromata that form. And that's the fungal fruiting body. Um, so if you think about it, it's the end of the life cycle of, of the this, this fungus. It's reached the end of its maturity. It wants to release more spores to, to infect new plants with its uh, prodigy. Um, so again, you know, it's, we see those stroma, those black spots, um, and then they open up and they're going to release more, more spores and create a secondary cycle. And we still are trying to figure out the timelines between those cycles, but there's probably, depending on where those spores are released early in the season, was going to dictate how many cycles we'll have before the end of the season um, within that year. And then at the end of the season, the life cycle that whatever's remaining in that debris will be shed to the soil and available for future um, infections. It's Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, when you talk about overwintering, um, 
Darcy, what what do we know? So so you, you kind of get the question right. So it's it's here now and 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 it's continuing to build. Um, we we see more and more of it each year. What what do we know about the overwintering process um, and and maybe the percent of spore survival? Um, I still think it's pretty limited. Um, really, we're still working on some of those tools to really determine how much of the debris do we need to have to have those stroma survive and how long. I mean, really, the the one work the work we did back in nineteen when we looked at these spores kind of looked at how many spores were being released and then the viability of the spores, and it depended on location. So in Indiana, maybe some of our samples had a little fewer number of spores, but then 20% of those spores were still viable versus maybe Michigan or uh, Wisconsin Wisconsin samples. And I can't remember exactly which ones had maybe millions of more spores, but then the viability was down to 1%. But if you still look at the number of spores coming off, we only need a few really to, to get the cycle going in, in the crop canopy. And then those secondary cycles, you know, will continue. And once we have that spore movement, you know, it won't matter if you, the the disease started in your field, those secondary cycles are going to move around in the wind from field to field. I, I'm, I have a hard time of not inserting myself in here, but like, Darcy, Go ahead. <laughs> please, please do. That's why you were invited. We, right. we were no, hoping but, you would. <laughs> so, well, I'm just wondering, like, is one of the strategies, so you, you look at all of the, these um, stromata that are on the leaves and you compare it to gray leaf spot or northern corn leaf bite where you have three or four lesions on, on a leaf, and now you have hundreds, thousands. You know, is, is that a, a evolutionary strategy of this fungus is to produce a lot? You're, you're talking about millions of spores. Like It only needs 1% survival because there's so many out there. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's just like a, a, a strategy that the fungus is, is taking or not. I don't have the exact answer, but I'm guessing it could have been. That's well, it the kind of feels like the, you. the the perfect disease, right? right? I mean, if you need if you need one percent survival, I yeah. mean that makes it. I, I guess that's what when I say it's terrifying. It's like, well, good luck controlling right. something right. that one yeah. percent survivability is is uh, is enough. That's not. I a think good the day. key is that well, it does and, survive, right? Yeah, right. and that's so. that's something part part of my notes for the last the last uh, podcast we did on Tar Spot. You know, I had some notes. And, and some facts that that uh, Nathan uh, out of Illinois, how do you pronounce it? Kluteski. Yeah, so uh, he he found that at ten percent disease severity, one million to ten million ascospores per gram of dry mass can be released. So that, that's a lot yep. of spores. And, yes, and you look at some of our severity. Yeah, some of our severity. I mean, we can get up to fifty percent severity. You know, that's that's a lot of spores that can be produced. Right, and then if even you think about, so I look at our season where our severities were extremely low in twenty twenty two. But you look at at the end of this, the life cycle as we approached harvest, it still continued to produce the stromata. We saw a lot more come out at the end to try to, in my mind, be ready for next year and have have that inoculum available for the next season. So I think that is something to consider is that it, it's here, we have the disease present, and then whatever is going to happen in season is going to be really dictated by the environmental conditions that turn on the disease. So one of the questions I get from farmers is like, you know, like you, you get a, especially when you're giving a talk and it's like 40 below out and they're, <laughs> they're always wondering like, Hey, is it, is it cold enough to kill these things yeah. off? And so yeah. like, does, is climate or, or temperature or any of that matter in the, in the survival of these from year to year? Theoretically, yes. But I would say so. Some of the work that we did, you know, Wisconsin, when we did those samples from Wisconsin that season, they had a really cold winter and that didn't you know, reduce the amount of viable spores that came out of their samples. So I'm not sure how much winter kill we'll get on that, um, the debris that's remaining. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's like zero degrees here right now, which is... <laughs> Well, do your we're job environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're not going to survive, but this disease might. Um, the fungus, like most fungi, I always, my answer to the farmers is usually I store all my fungi in a minus 80 freezer. Okay. They, they, well, they, that's they, you. they do fine, but the tar spot's a little bit different. You know, like it, again, it needs that host or it needs, you know, we can't just store things and, and like grow them back out on media. Yeah. So, but in general, most fungi, I figured out a way to, you know, survive in really really cold conditions yeah. as long as they get there at the, you know the right way so i don't know mm. yeah you're, it's terrifying i think it's a word <laughs> yeah, i feel like i'm just gonna like <laughs> apocalypse after, yeah, yeah after every point it's just that's gonna be the response but so i guess, I guess let's let's start thinking about the spring and so we know we've we've talked on our podcast about leaf wetness and and certain environmental factors but when we think about like spring um spore germination what what environment favors that what what's happening in the spring that would trigger an earlier germination i think i think if we look back at what we've done here in indiana um where we look at the you know the spring weather um a wetter spring is what's going to dictate it. So like in 2021, we went from thinking we we're going to have a drought to lot, lots of rainfall and we had above above average rainfall in those that June and July. Um, so really, I think it's good that that weather, those weather conditions within June and July are really, really going to dictate when those spores are going to be released to try to get into the upper canopy. Um, if we look at what happened in this last season, we were and dry in June. And that's what shut it down for a long time. And we really didn't have disease developed till September. Um, mm. So again, I think that early spring is going to really dictate um, how fast the disease is going to come out. How, how, you know, how was our planting situation? Do we get the crops in early? Do we have good growing conditions? Um, I think this one thing with with tar spot is it does prefer the better growing conditions. So those years where we're going to have a bumper corn uh crop is and those areas that have the high risk for disease those are the that's when the disease risk i think is going to go up as well because we've had those optimum conditions it likes it just as much as the you know good growing conditions for tar spot is about similar as good growing conditions for corn do we know darcy if if those environmental factors that that lead to spring spore germination are, are those similar or the same as the the same environmental conditions that would favor you know leaf infection in symptoms later on in the growing season I don't think we've teased all the details about which what conditions are more favorable or, or others. Um, I think once it gets in the plant, then we've got it infected. You know, we've it's growing within those leaves, and then and it may be a change in spore types that you know then the secondary spores may be more readily to infect even without the more the optimum conditions that we might see in the spring. We may not need as much. You know, I think we need cooler, wetter weather in the spring for that infection. But then once it moves in summer, as long as we have those moisture conditions, I think. It doesn't matter how hot it gets here in Indiana. But again, we're still working on collecting all that data and trying to determine it. And this, this pathogen is really hard to work in the, the lab and the greenhouse yep. to really, you know, hone in on those ideal conditions. And that's the hardest part of that is every and every year is different. So we have to factor in all those field conditions to try to determine how our infections occurred. Yep. So can, can you unpack, you said the moisture. So, mm -hmm. I, and, and I think like a lot of times when, when I'm giving talks, like farmers equate that to rain. Rain. But like, like yep. what, what, what exactly, how would you define moisture as far as importance of disease development? So for this one, it's, it's leaf wetness. So whatever's contributing to those leaves being wet. So relative humidity, dew points, rainfall, all of those are going to contribute to that moisture period. Um, when we look at Indiana, you know, 
our highest risk areas, northern Indiana, around Lake Michigan, where we have the lake effect weather, where we have longer periods of dew, long you know mornings with the fog setting across those counties. Those are the areas where we've seen the greatest risk of disease. Uh, maybe if you're along a river bottom or a lake as well, where you have that moisture coming off another body of water. Um, that have those longer periods where the leaves are, are wetter through the, the morning hours, I think is what's really going to push the disease as well. So it's those conditions that will contribute to leaf wetness for those spores to germinate and get in and out the, uh, their infection points. So I'll translate that for you, Sean. Sorry. Like, no, when, when you're golfing <laughs> and, you're, and, your feet, and, and it's early morning and you're trying to get a quick nine in before you go to work and your feet get wet right. or, you, or you hit a worm burner and the right. ball is... Right. You know, there's there's a lot of worm wo- burner. Yeah, there's a lot of moisture mm. coming off of that ball. Who invited this guy? <laughs> that would be an example of like, hey, yeah. those are good yeah. conditions for tar spot. Yeah, I just wanted to translate that yeah. for you. Yeah. I usually don't try, try and get a quick nine in. It's just like if I go golfing, it's just I'm just gone that day. it's never quick. <laughs> well, the other aspect for those of us that don't golf is if you walk in the field and you get wet, yeah. and you're still wet, getting wet at noon in the morning. You know. That's what I always say, too. When I'm talking, I just say, people ask me, what are the conditions? I'm like, just give it the shoe test. Go out in your front yard. If you're walking through your yard and you got wet feet, there's that's that was probably the right amount of time for favorable right. conditions. I, I know we'll visit we'll visit this when we when we kind of talk about management. But I mean, I, I think something that really kind of just it, it just bugs me when we have this conversation is that seems inevitable. Right. I mean, it seems inevitable that those that those conditions are going to occur. That's not a unique situation right. in the in the Corn Belt. Right. I mean, so it, it it'll be interesting to watch the evolution of our understanding, because certainly we saw some of those events in 2022. Right. I mean, we didn't go without any leaf wetness periods, but apparently not enough to kick up severe instances until we got to really kind of that, at least in central Iowa, it was September, probably 5th or 10th. Yeah. Yeah. We really started seeing it. So I I think if you look at like some of the other model disease models that like there's some really good ones in Apple and what they do is they they look at that shoe test over a, a week period. Sure. And so if, so if there is a break, then that might actually break the cycle. But if you get your feet wet walking around in the grass in the morning, six days in a row yep. well that's like primo time for yep. our spot but if it's hmm. one day and then the next three or four days it's not and then there's another day yeah. then you know so like and that's that's the kind of stuff that darcy and, and the rest of us are, are studying is sort of trying to figure out that epi, epidemiology portion of it yeah. so i'd like to talk about that when we talk about the management side of this because i think for for kind of the advisory position of, of, okay, when, when do we really start to have to get eyes on this thing? It'd be nice to know kind of the trigger. Okay. Here's, here's what we've observed from a climatology standpoint. Now you better be living in those fields to make observations, you know, and maybe that's just yeah. the new norm, but we'll talk about that on the, uh, on the yeah. management yeah. section. So. <laughs> so, so Darcy, at the beginning, you, you sort of tied back all, like so one of the passions that you have is to get it back to the microscope. And like, I think that having a new disease is always fun because there's so much to learn but like what like go go through the go through the infection process like sort of at the dorky level like you know is it, is it using so, the uh, stomates is it like how is it getting into that leaf i we i don't think we exactly know if we're going in and out of the stomates i think there's there's something to do with that um but um from what when we're working on some of the histology here um at purdue with a couple other labs that we're working with um 
So, and I've seen recently, actually this week, I've seen some really interesting pictures of, you know, we've captured the leaves and took them in from the field where we had different size stromata and they're, they're imaging that. So we don't, you know, because we don't really, and there's new protocols coming out with new infection, but to follow that infection from the spore, seeing it germinate. And in fact, we don't quite have that all down, but we can kind of see where it moves in. And actually, you know, I talk about the end of the life cycle, it's, you know, consuming photosynthetic material within that leaf. And then it begins to form that spore structure. And um, some of those initial stages after that infection, and we won't, we won't see it till we see that stromata formed, but it's the melanization of that, those cells that are forming the stromata. So you have that start forming. And then within that, you know, as we, once we get a more mature uh, uh, melanized structure, then it's going to start producing those ascospores or canidia. And so we do have two different types of spores um, that we can see, and we're still trying to figure out what, what do they do to the life cycle. So we know that ascospores are probably our primary infection for that initial uh, infection period, but then it produces this canidia. And, are, you know, are they true canidia actual spores? Or are they actually just spermatia involved in the mating types of coming in together? These are all these questions we still don't know. and We got to tease apart what the spores do. But if you look at, if we get samples into the clinic, you know, uh, Darren, you can have canidia and ascospores. You can have it oozing two different kinds of spores. Um, generally think that ascospores are what's con contributing to the, the multiple cycles, but we have those other canidia and they're doing odd things and we still don't know quite exactly what's going on. So they form that structure and then once it's mature, we'll open up and release those ascospores um, to that leaf surface. Or, or So sometimes if you see that oozing coming out. Yep. So, Darcy, let's build a little, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier how long, you know, from, from the infection, the, the time of infection until we see symptoms. Um, do we do we know, I mean, I think you mentioned 14 to 21 days, right? And, and do we, does, does the weather, you know, you kind of got me thinking about this earlier when you guys were talking about breaks between ideal conditions. So, so do we have any idea, you know, from if that 14 to 21 days exist in, in our minds, do, does the environmental factors, you know, can we have a, a, a dry period within that 14 to 21 days that will impact that 14 to 21 mm -hmm. days? Do, do we have any idea how, you know, the, the environment impacts that, that residual day or the, the timing of I mean, most likely? Yes, but we haven't determined that yet. You know what I mean? And that's where we're kind of limited on that that ideal trial or uh, greenhouse lab, exp or lab experiment we want to run is, will a dry condition shift that days to make it 30 instead of 20, right? Oh, that's yeah. the question. Yep. You know what I mean? And, and in a site, you know, what is what is the plant doing too? How is the, the pathogen, how is phylocore interacting with that corn leaf? Is there a growth stage factor that triggers the formation of the stroma? So I kind of, we kind of generally see that, you know, about R3, R4, it really starts kicking up into that crop canopy. Even if we had detected it three or four weeks earlier with a few lesions, there does seem to be some kind of um, physiological interaction that's going to, that might promote the pathogen. Then it's already, it's been living within that tissue. And then it says, Hey, the host is now reaching maturity and going to, you know, senesce that we need to make sure we're producing that secondary cycles to, to be available for the next seasons too. So I think we're, there's still a lot of questions out to try to tease apart on how the, the, pathogens interacting with those hosts and if there's like different gene for gene interactions that are turning on that will trigger it to all of a sudden I got to release all the stroma and that's why we see 
you know, that change from two weeks from going green leaf tissue where we have a handful of stroma and then two weeks later, it's just blighted leaves, just fully loaded. Yeah. Um, and I'm, so I think there's a lot of questions in there. We still have, I mean, this is, what are we, four years in now, really yeah. looking at research here. And, and and so there's a lot more, many more questions to figure out. And we haven't figured all that out on the other diseases that we've dealt with for over 20 years. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's a, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really good answer though, because you know, you, you, you somewhat answered what I, what I've been curious and thinking about because tar spot's strange in that you like, you know, you'll see a, a one lesion and then you know, on one plant, one lesion in an area, nothing else. And then two weeks later, the whole field just covered. It, yeah. It's, it's strange. Right. So that, that was a, some in, good insight. And I'm curious, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to see what we find out in the future. And I, you can think about it, though. I think you there's a lot of, you know, we have a, a lot of spores being released. So maybe that first lesion is the first one to get going. So we probably had a spore drop. And then as time progresses, we see some of that primary infection. But then once they get kicked up and as it moves up the crop canopy, particularly in the fields with a history where we know it's moving from that lower canopy to the upper canopy, then we have more spores moving. But that initial, when we go from one, one lesion to hundreds of lesions the next week, I think those are still that primary infection that's just finally coming out of that, that leaf. Yeah. Do you know, in, in your research looking at tar spot, do you know, you know, we have some diseases like gray leaf spot that are favored by higher higher nitrogen rates. Um, do you know, have you ever seen any inter interaction with, you know, nitrogen rates or just stress in general with, in, in regards to tar spot incidence or severity? Um, so I think you had Marty on, right? You said that. So he's the one that's done some work on the nitrogen side of things. And I think He's got a manuscript coming out that will show that they didn't, from their trials, they didn't see the influence of nitrogen as much. Anecdotally, I've had farmers say that they've probably, they thought they had more tar spot in the areas where they had put down extra nitrogen. Um, but I think it comes back to how much green tissue do you have when the disease is taking off in the canopy? And I think those are the things that are really going to push how much disease we see. So if the infection starts later and we have a healthy plant that's got lots of tissue to infect because it needs that living tissue, we're going to see more disease in that 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 crop. We're going to see more disease probably in, in later maturing hybrids because they have more tissue available when the disease is really ramping up at the end of August to show higher infection levels. If our corn is reaching maturity and we have less of the, you know, starting to shut down and senesce, then there's less area for that disease to colonize at that point. Just that, I don't know. That sounds, that's good. Yeah. Kind of good. yeah, I'll be the guy just sitting over here saying the word terrifying over and over <laughs> again. But it seems, I mean, it seems counterproductive to everything we think about, you know. I mean, we're we're pushing maturities on the the full season end of the scale. We're, we're using technology to keep the plants greener longer. So to your point earlier, just about the better growing conditions, the better plant health, we're just setting ourselves up for a higher incidence. That's... Terrifying. Right. <laughs> so this this pathogen found that niche, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. So. But uh, go ahead. So we have uh, at the very beginning, you said phylocora is the is the pathogen. But we, you know, if you go back into the literature, it it drags in monographella, and and there's obviously a you know we see a complex, we see the fish eye. Like, where are we at with that it's from from your lab? Thus far, no one has found monographella here in the United States. So that's the first thing that I know of, as far as I know. Um, as for other things that we're looking at, and this is some work also with Dr. Chilvers and up in Michigan State, they've been looking at that fisheye lesion. As far as we've seen, none of us have been able to pull anything other than some other um, necro 
you know, what I would say, like opportunistic fungi yeah. come up, yeah, coming off the leaf. Um, so some fusariums and uh, maybe, um, and I can't remember the exact name of it, a conotherium type of, of, of fungus um, that may be opportunistic pathogens moving in, or they may not be pathogens, but they're just moving in to then colonize the tissue that's already been depleted by right by lacora. Well, and, and so. I know you have a paper out on coniotherium, but it's uh, in a different system. I mean, right. Like, well, so, so there, that pathogen I'm saying is the, right. That pathogen so that, that's a, a pathogen for other pathogens. My, yeah. So it's 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 <laughs> of that group. It's got a different. It's not exactly coniotherium, and I just uh, yeah, I don't can't remember what it is. I know um, Marty's lab pulled it, and we so we see a coniotherium like path like pathogen of a pathogen, a mycoparasite moving into that tar spot stromata taking over hmm. so there's potential there for maybe there's a biocontrol out there that we can find that would colonize but does it colonize fast enough to reduce diseases would be the next question yeah. um that's fascinating it would yeah. certainly have a lot to eat so. <laughs> yes <laughs> it would have plenty to eat that's for sure <laughs> oh, pathology jokes <laughs> I said we've I, I, we've seen another couple different other ones, but we don't know what they are yet. So we're still working on trying to identify what else is moving into that that space as well. Hmm. All right. Well, all right. So I, I, I I'm just sort of rattling through all of the papers that were you're right. publishing, and so <laughs> um, the, one of them that we are, that's in progress right now is looking at the genome and sort of the what's the sequence and and all of that. Maybe. I don't want to get into the gory details on that, but what's the value of knowing that? And like, how does that ultimately lead to a sort of better management or. Right. And so because of the obligate nature, we can't do a lot of work in the lab. Right. And so we may have to rely on what we can pull from the genome. So we, we initially, my group initially did a brief genome sequence of the phylocore to try to help us identify some primers that we might be able to use to tease apart what's going on in the population. And so we use that to identify some, single sequence repeats that would give us primers that can then compare the different populations. So what's going on here in Indiana versus Iowa? How do our populations look? Were there one introduction event or was it a, do we have multiple introduction events and how diverse is the, the gene, the species that we're dealing with here? Um, so that's kind of where we tried to get in with some of the sequencing. And I know there's more sequencing going on and uh, USDA is doing a lot of that. And they're trying to now delve into the sequence to identify are there areas where we can look for resistance um, based on other other fungal pathogens, can we identify areas that we may want to target to put resistance into our hosts? Um, so that's kind of the the what we're some of the work being done with the genome sequencing and um, trying to identify regions that may have in, be of interest for resistance, and then also look at the diversity of the Phylocora uh, species here. And you know how are this you know is, is what's going on in Indiana, similar spores, pathogens as, as the one in Michigan or Wisconsin, or are they different? Do they come from Central America or do they come from Mexico? You know, there's those questions too. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.